Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. Hello, I'm very lucky today to be talking to Dr. Elizabeth Pisani in London. Elizabeth is a world-renowned epidemiologist, author, polyglot, and good friend who's partly to blame for me ending up in Hong Kong. Elizabeth Pisani, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Thank you so much. I've been waiting for this for years. I can't believe you didn't invite me earlier. Ah, takes a, takes a pandemic, eh? It takes a pandemic, yeah. Well, you know, perhaps my earlier comments about you being partly to blame for me ending up here in Hong Kong is as good a place to start as any. Do you remember how we met and how you forced me out here? I I have vague memories of you clad from head to foot in rubber. Um <laughs> And uh, and and thinking in a full in a dinner party full of quite grand people, um, and thinking, mm, mm. it was trendy rubber. It wasn't a, oh, a gimp suit. <laughs> <laughs> Forgive me, my aesthetic categorizations. <laughs> and so that was the moment you thought you had to get the get me out of your house and over to Hong Kong. Although I do remember that it was a very, very difficult uh, balance to strike because at the mo at the time, you were contributing um, a bottle of wine a week, which you, I'm not going to use the word raided because I don't know whether that's accurate. That is um, not accurate. But, I didn't but, have a but, single which swig. Which you acquired of from the cellars of you know restaurants that I couldn't even afford to breathe the air in, um, and it is the best wine I've ever drunk. So so there was always that oh you know we could get rid of the the gimp suits, but then the <laughs> wine would go too. It was it was difficult. <laughs> I don't think it was that difficult. Anyway, Elizabeth, let me uh, brief my listeners very quickly about you. You're a writer. You have two brilliant books, The Wisdom of Whores and Indonesia, etc., both very different books. And as an epidemiologist, you worked with the WHO and UN AIDS on the spread of HIV AIDS. Now, obviously, the word on everyone's lips globally right now is the C word, coronavirus. There seems to be a wealth of information, almost too much sometimes, both good and bad, and quite a few conspiracy theories lurking around. As a journalist and as an epidemiologist, can you tell us how you feel information about the COVID-19 virus is being communicated? Um, so it, it's interesting when you said there's a lot of information out there, both good and bad. I, you know, I kind of want to to, to to quarantine the bad information. It's not information. It's bollocks. The official yeah. term for that is bollocks, right? Okay. So there's a lot of information and there's a lot of bollocks. The problem is that there's no way for people to distinguish between the two. So, and I would like to say only get your information, you know, from legitimate sources, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm sitting here in the UK where, until just a couple of days ago, the government has been peddling bollocks. 
Um, so it's it's a very very difficult um, uh, difficult question yeah, to answer. Yeah, I mean, you know, people don't know which way to move on it in many ways. Um, it's very I, I think annoying. That it's interesting. It's a bit like um, some of the early HIV prevention messaging. Because there's so much out there, you can essentially just pick whatever uh, confirms your own desires and prejudices. Um, and I think that that's very dangerous because it, it's very easy to say, oh, well, but I'm not in the high risk group, you know, so I can afford to go out and mix because even if I get sick, you know, I'm not going to die. Yeah. Um, but that's not how epidemics work. You're still going to contribute to someone else dying. So this this concept of social responsibility, which has been absolutely gutted from so many or has been has been um excised from so many of our societies in recent years um i think you know now they're trying to pump it back in and that's very difficult to do if for many many years you've been talking about you know that that dog eat dog individual get ahead um you know isn't it great entrepreneurship downside gig economy but hey that's fine because anyone can be a squillionaire sort of thing which is uh, predominates in in obviously the United States uh, the UK maybe Australia you know some of the Anglo countries less so in other uh, in some other cultures yeah. I think that this is really really feeding on that um, and it's interesting I mean I, I feel like I'm stuck in this vortex between the three most irresponsible governments of all on this, which is the UK, the US and, and Indonesia, where I still do a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I mean, your first book, uh, The Wisdom of Whores, great title, by the way. Can you tell me a bit about the book? And more importantly, what can the world's oldest profession tell us about coronavirus and the fight against it? <laughs> well, uh, I, I should probably say that um, the so the wisdom of horse was actually a, a, about um, the the global health mafia and particularly the HIV mafia, um, and I picked that title in part um, because one of the things that we failed to do was listen to to sex workers and other people who are most affected early in the HIV uh, epidemic. We did a lot of like pontificating and modeling and, you know, this is how it's going to go all in our uh, little silos without thinking, yeah, but it involves human beings who actually know more about um, risk than than we do. Um, but the other thing was that everyone was like, you know, desperately running after the money. And in the end, we just all became whores. And I'm talking about uh, UN agencies. I'm talking about NGOs. Yeah. I'm talking about researchers. It was like, yay, HIV, let's let's sell ourselves to that uh, to that payer, to that bidder. Um, but but I think that um, what that can tell us about COVID a bit is that and and this is I I know that uh, probably few of you I hope few of your listeners have the misfortune of living in the UK at the moment, but um, those that do will be very well aware of the the um, 
the authority with which the government said just a week ago, oh, no, it's fine. Go out and do maximum mixing because that's going to flatten the peak and that's going to delay the peak. And That's right. Uh, and what like, is called herd protection. Herd immunity. And it was that classic thing of a bunch of... Um, you know, extremely well-meaning, extremely clever mathematical modelers doing scenario planning in front of screens in their offices without thinking, but wait, this involves human beings who have human behaviors that don't necessarily pan out the way your model does. Um, and I think that, that that was kind of really ignored and, and, and now we're going to live with the consequences of it. Sorry, I've just got to do a little in parenthesis rant, if I may. Yes, okay, you go for it, we, rant away. <laughs> you know how, how you kind of fixate on, when you're generally angry at incompetence or whatever, you kind of fixate on one particular thing to be furious about. So the thing I'm most furious about is when people keep saying, oh, I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not an expert. And it's like, well, I fucking am. And I tell you what, you don't have to be because this is a primary school maths problem. You cannot reduce the peak by encouraging maximum mixing. But while they were going out with those two mixed messages, uh, well, it's uh, like around 100,000 people gathered in one place to watch horses running around in circles. Incredible, isn't it? But that whole herd protection thing, it, it, it was, I mean, it certainly didn't take off here in Asia. It's, it's very much a European thing, I think. Uh, well, no, it's exclusively British and, and it's bollocks. Um, we, we don't know. I mean, you know, everyone's like madly disclaiming, I'm not a virologist. I'm not. Um, but we only have experience um, of of one um, previous coronavirus that is most similar to this, which was SARS. And what we know about that is that it doesn't confer, that infection doesn't confer into seasonal um, protection. So immunity. So, um, you know, so it's not like you get one vaccine and it's it's going to be very, very, very likely. It's going to be like flu, not like polio, right? Right. Not like smallpox, one vaccine, you're done. No, it's going to be serial yeah. vaccines for mutations every year. So the fact that we could, even if the herd immunity thing worked mathematically, which I humbly suggest it does not in this case, um, it only works for one season and then what, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you you probably already answered my next question then, but I mean, you live in London, but you lived in Africa, Europe, the US, Hong Kong, Indonesia, Vietnam, China, and you probably <laughs> speak most of those languages anyway. But uh, tell us which countries are doing a good job on the virus and what are the actions they're doing that are good and which countries are doing a bad job well interestingly one of the countries that's doing uh, you know i i don't i don't know um because i you know i, I my my sources of information and bollocks are, are basically the same as yours um highly but, unlikely uh, but nevertheless but, um uh, south africa is doing rather a good job oh really 
Yes. Wow. So South Africa has um, shut down basically everything before there's even a single recorded case of community transmission. Now, that may be because there's not that much recording going on, but they've just taken a decision to say, OK, we're all going to collectively take a hit economically and etc. Um, but in this population, particularly where we have... I don't know what the current figures are, but, you know, upwards of three million people who are HIV positive, many of whom are not on treatment, so therefore immunocompromised. We've got a large uh, a population of people with tuberculosis, which obviously is going to be um, a very, very bad comorbidity, to use the pompous phrase, um, with uh, a, a respiratory uh, virus like uh, like COVID nineteen, yeah. they've said you know we're going to protect all of those people by just shutting down everything, shutting down economic activity, and I think that that's a really uh, responsible um, thing to do, as opposed to the UK, which said we're going to protect the economy. Let's not think about the individuals yeah. in our economy, and especially let's not think about the most vulnerable. Uh, in our economy, um, who are, you know, physically the most vulnerable are elderly people and people with comorbidities and uh, or people who are already sick with other things. Um, and economically, there's a lot of overlap between that and and uh, poverty. We didn't think about them. And and the, the, the prime minister, Boris Johnson, actually stood in front of the cameras and said, well you know i've got i've got to level with the british public got to got to level with the british public uh there's uh yes yeah, so you're going to uh mm. you know it's very sad a lot of you are going to lose loved ones and you know translated as get ready to say goodbye to your granny because we've decided to sacrifice her yeah i mean uh, it's incredible all these countries shutting down I mean, isn't it? I mean, what, what can we expect then in the months ahead? <laughs> Who the fuck knows? Have, have you not got a crystal ball there in your <laughs> your, your Stoke Newington flat? Uh, tragically not. Um, I mean, I'm I'm flying to the United States today, which is where my parents are, which is another, you know, shit show, um, because I'm worried that airspace will will shut completely. Absolutely. And and I won't be able to be there if they need me. So, well. is that why you're going? Okay, so so you'll you'll be stuck there for a while then. I, I've I've optimistically booked a flight back in in right. uh, in a bit less than a month's time, but uh, we'll see. Oh. Hey, listen, listen. You did a TED talk about sex, drugs, and HIV, describing the way in which politics, religion, and culture can outweigh scientific evidence in decision-making about HIV prevention. In fact, you quote a Jakarta prostitute, or specifically a chicken a dick, as you described her. When it gets to politics, nothing makes sense. I mean, obviously, that's still valid with COVID-19, isn't it? I think more more than uh, more than ever. Yeah, it's really interesting to see. It really it separates the grown ups from the you know the adolescents in yeah. leadership, basically. And it's really interesting. So South Africa, after you know years of 
crap governance and and you know and state capture and etc has suddenly got quite grown up south korea singapore hong kong of course they have the um the uh history of the first sars um uh, epidemic to to build on but they've been super grown up china i think china's getting a really really shit rap i think that after a slow start they did a very good job but their slow start was nothing like as egregious as the slow start in the us or the uk yeah. where we know what's happening we know what's coming in china they had no idea and once they realized they moved extremely quickly and that's one of the weird things about um you know public health i'm i i always say to students you know if you're there's a there's a real tension of working in public health because everyone gets into it because they're all kind of touchy feely want to save the world and oh you know I want to make a difference but it is actually basically a very fascist discipline <laughs> um, it is putting the public good ahead of individual rights in in many um, in in many ways and what we're seeing now is the grown ups are willing to do that. And the adolescents aren't. It's 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 all rather depressing to think though that even uh, because obviously this is a different virus to HIV. This is a coronavirus, and even if there were um, antiretroviral drugs, it is it might not really work. I mean, in in your TED in your TED talk, you mention about HIV that the antiretroviral drugs should not be the reason to drop your guard because, in fact, HIV cases in Scotland at the time when you did your talk went up in the gay community despite the drugs. Yeah, that... Um... I'm I'm happy to say uh, that that is gradually more than 10 years later being reversed uh, or 10 years later being reversed um, because the coverage of, of the drugs are um, now so great. So what so the the prevalence obviously goes up which is the proportion of the people who are infected in a population and overall go rising prevalence it is also a sign that people are staying alive longer, right? Because prevalence goes down if everyone dies. Um, so rising prevalence is not necessarily a bad thing. What you want to do is stop new infections. Uh, and for a while, new infections continued uh, for quite a long while after um, treatment was available. New infections continued to rise. Um I haven't looked at the data in the last year or so, but it appears that that's no longer the case, which is good mm. uh, in in those settings. You you you've rubbed people up the wrong way a few times, haven't you? I mean, you were on BBC's Hard Talk, and actually, I thought Stephen Sacker is that his name? Sacker gave you quite a hard time, particularly with regards to your comments about Africa having high rates of HIV because, well because Africans enjoy sex. In essence, he accused you of saying Africans were loose. Was that fair? Um, loose, funny word, that, isn't that's it? That's what he used, yeah. Um, and I yeah, remember, so I think you were quite taken back then. 
Well, I I said I think I said to him then what I would say to you now, which is, you know, it the word loose suggests that sex is a bad thing. Do you think that? No, absolutely not. Well, there you go. When I can get it. <laughs> Arrest I mean, my um, you know, another divisive topic, and I don't want to go into this because it has been spoken about quite a lot, are face masks. I mean, Asia versus Europe. Asia, people have been wearing face masks, you know, for decades because, you know, even when they have a cold, whereas Europe, it's it's going to be much harder to get everyone wearing them if you can find them. Well, we're being told not to. That's the bizarre thing. We're being told. So there's a lot of really, really, really confused messaging. And most of the confused messaging is because of half-truths and because of patronizing governments who don't wish to appear authoritarian. So the Chinese government will just say, you will do this, you will do that. You will not do this, you will not do that. Singapore, the same thing, right? In Western countries, although this is changing very rapidly everywhere except uh, maybe the UK, but in Western countries, there's a great reluctance for the government to be seen to tell citizens what to do, right? Mm. So, uh, So what we have to do is make them think that it's their decision right and so we put out this and we don't say okay look here's the situation face masks really are helpful but we don't have enough supplies of them and therefore we need to uh reserve them for frontline health staff yeah. So what we've done is we've said, oh, don't bother with face masks because face masks aren't, aren't really very effective, you know, unless you're infected. But, you know, they're not really effective at, at preventing uh, transmission. Actually, they probably are. We don't have those data, mm. but they probably are effective. But no one wants to say we are putting the public good ahead of your individual good as a citizen by reserving the uh, by reserving the stock of them for frontline health staff. And I have to say, there has been a problem around the world getting hold of them. Unfortunately, here in Hong Kong, they're back on the shelves. You can yeah, buy so, them. Oh, I mean, they? they cost okay. a bit, but you know, you can get them at least. I mean, I think it's interesting that, so I, my day job now um, is working on, uh, I work on fake and, and substandard medicines. So oh, this fake is what I want to go crap. on to. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Fake yeah. drugs. Yeah. So, so it's really interesting because about, uh, oh, I remember about two years ago, we developed a, a framework that kind of explained um, what drives the markets for fake drugs but also for crap drugs so those are two separate things so fake drugs are just you know out and out pretending to be something they're not very often with no active ingredients at all um so just sugar or chalk or whatever or with the wrong active ingredient or a little bit of something to you know make you feel like you're taking something but not effective Mm -hmm. and then crap drugs are made by legitimate companies but just to very very low standards um because they're because mostly because of cost cutting so okay and, so what what's sorry what's the difference between fake drugs placebos and generics then i mean 
Uh, wait. Who? Okay. Oh, oh, sorry. Got? Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, no, 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 no. I mean. No, I, let me explain. Let me explain. Um, okay. Because I think it's really, really important that 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 this is understood. Uh, a placebo is only used <clears throat> in a trial situation. In if you're doing a, a, a if you're testing a new drug, and you want to see how effective the new drug is, you you don't. The, so the placebo effect is when uh, you get a response to a medicine because uh, of a psychological uh, reaction. So an, a, a classic drug might be Viagra, right? I might take a blue pill. You might take a blue pill, um, which purports to be Viagra. And because of that, be able to get a hard on that you'd been having a hard time getting before just because of the psychological factor, mm. Right. And it might actually not have any sildenafil in it, might not have any of the active ingredient in it, but the psychological effect makes you feel like you're going to get a hard on, so you do, right? Right. Okay, so that's a, a placebo when it's a, but it's only it's a delib it's made deliberately to test the effect of a new drug. Okay. Those are not in the market at all. A generic drug is uh, a exact chemical copy of a medicine made by a company that was not the company that invented that medicine. Oh, okay. Right. So Viagra is made by Pfizer. They invented it and they get a patent on that. For, well, Viagra is a brand name for a chemical entity called a chemical entity called sildenafil, right? And they get to brand it any way they want, and they they're the only ones who are allowed to sell that chemical entity for twenty years, or well, it depends on the country. But basically, they have a patent protection on that drug, and no one else can make the same thing for that period. Okay. And then after that period, people are allowed to make the same thing and when other companies start making it there's competition in the market the price drops so they're not allowed to call it viagra but they're allowed to it's still it's sildenafil viagra is a brand name it's not a description of drug okay right so they're not allowed to call it viagra but they're allowed to call it um you know pete wood's magic blue pill is, does, how do you see all of those, I mean, fake drugs, placebos or generic generics, how do you see them affecting this epidemic? Uh, well, uh, a, a generic can only be made after a drug has come off patent. And right now we don't have any drugs or vaccines to treat this. So. Is at all. Now, what's really, really, really interesting about this epidemic is that it, it, I should say pandemic, is that it might be a game changer for the uh, pharmaceutical industry. Because what's happened in the pharmaceutical industry until now is that a lot of public money has gone into research for drugs through universities principally. So people like the National Institutes of Health in the US, um, or the MRC, the Medical Research Council in the UK, they put tons and tons of public money into drug research, like cancer research and stuff. And lots of charities do too. 
And a lot of that uh, research happens at universities. But universities don't have the capacity to make drugs on a big scale. So when they've done all the difficult bits of actually making the chemical entity, then a big pharma company will step in and they'll say, okay, we'll now do the final clinical trials, the clinical testing of this, which is very expensive to do. And then if it shows to work, then we'll make it. And so they are allowed to grab the patent for that and lock it up for 20 years, even though the original drug was developed with public money. Right. Okay. Very interesting. Universities. Right. So now in this case, and then they can sell it for any fucking price they want, and they don't have to give anything back to the countries that have put the money into to the public money in to develop it. So they can then sell it at any price they want. And if they're in the US, at least in the UK and, and most other countries, you have a national insurance system or a national health system that can bargain down the price. But in the US, you don't even have that. So they put this really, really high price tag on it. And then the taxpayers who paid for its development don't have access to it. Wow. I know. It's a bit gobsmacking, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we're we're kind of, you know, this is something that I know you can talk about for a long time, but we're coming up to half an hour and I promised you only 15 minutes. Um, So let's, are you working on another book? And if so, when can we expect it? No. No. Okay. Well, that's, that's the answer to that. Um, Um, As you know, perhaps writing books is a very glorious way to starve. (laughs) Damn right. Yeah. I'm going to plug your work now, Indonesia, etc. If people want to find out more about that, they can go to Indonesia, etc. dot com. Wisdom of whores. They can go to wisdom of whores dot com. You can see Elizabeth's TED talk and heart talk by simply typing in her name on YouTube. um, And it's well worth uh, watching. And, of course, you can follow Elizabeth on Twitter at Elizabeth Pisani. Have I missed anything else, Elizabeth? Uh, so Elizabeth Pisani, unusually, is Elizabeth with a Z and Pisani with an S. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Um, well, I hope I bring you thousands more followers. Uh, it was great I, I, to talk to you. I'm sorry I'm, to know I'm not going to so keep much. you any longer. I know that you've got a busy day ahead. Um, but I hope we can talk again. Um, but I hope, I hope we don't have to wait for another pandemic. I, uh, I think this one will keep us busy for a while. <laughs> Elizabeth Pisani, thank you so much for joining me on Conversations. Great pleasure to talk to you. Take care. Bye. That was Dr. Elizabeth Pisani. Elizabeth is a visiting senior research fellow at King's College London, an honorary professor in the Department of Population Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and a fellow of the School of Health Policy and Management at Erasmus University, Rotterdam. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me, and remember, You can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. 
Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.